So Isaiah 37. After the 9-11 tragedy in the States in 2001, there was a deep impact in people, in the culture. One result that I remember was there was this groundswell of patriotism. And another effect was a renewed sense in seeking God and realizing that we need to come back to the Lord as a nation. And this really spilled out of the church and into the public arena. And one example would be during the seventh inning stretch of professional baseball games, it's customary, I don't know if you would know this, but they have what's called the seventh inning stretch. So in between the home, the, the visiting team and the home team batting, everyone stands up and they sing, take me out to the ball game. So everyone sings this song, and that was added to with God Bless America. That became very common, and still to this day, uh, across America, that song is typically sung during baseball games, and and that resurgence of the song. It was an old song, but it really had a comeback. And even at when when the president was being sworn in, they sung "God Bless America," and it just was a very, um, I guess, patriotic, but also a tip of the cap to God that we are a nation under God. And that thought that God bless America, as I began to think about it and I know others thought the same, was, of course, everyone wants blessings from God. If God exists, we want something from him, right? We all like free stuff. Um, But it occurred to me that God had already blessed America. We're asking him to bless us, but he's already blessed us. How about America bless God? That is, is a fitting exhortation for God's people to say, hey, haven't you been blessed by God? Haven't you received more than you could have imagined from God, how about you blessing him? How about you living for him instead of hoping that he's going to give you something or do something for you? And so I want to encourage you to think about that. Do you realize how blessed you are? Despite hardships or suffering or difficulty we do have in this life, which we will have, that's been promised, do you realize how much you've been blessed by God? That he sent his son, he's given you his word, and He's given you your life. He's given you knowledge of him. He sent his spirit to fill you. He said, I'll never leave or forsake you. He has all these promises for us that he's granted us. And we should be responding to that in blessing God and thanking him and remembering the good things he's done. And it's in doing his will we discover the blessing, not in living for ourselves or desiring things for us. And uh, so we'll be in Isaiah 37. And that's something that's really key in this passage is God saving for God's sake. We want to be saved for our sake, but God wants to save for his sake. And how that will change and revolutionize our prayers, the way we live, the way we think, if we realize we exist for God's sake. For God, not for me, though he loves us, though he has given us all things. Let's thank him. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We don't deserve your favor, yet you've given it to us uh, freely and generously. And you've given us life. You've given us hope, peace, and eternal life, salvation, deliverance from sin, from the carnal desires of the flesh. You've, You've opened up a way for us that we could not earn or discover on our own. We praise you for that. We thank you for calling us as your children, for giving us 
things to do for for gifting and aiding us in every way. And so we come before you, Lord, humbly desiring. We do desire your blessing, Lord, but we also want to bless you. We want to praise and thank you and remember the great things you've done. And as we read this passage, show us, Lord, individually how it applies to us. Help us to apply it profitably to our hearts and to be fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we read about the king of Assyria, how he sent the Rabshakeh to demand the surrender of King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And obedience to their king, the people, it said, they answered not a word. So he's threatening them, he's intimidating them, he's saying what they're going to do to them and how they have no chance of, of fighting against them or surviving. And he just says, just give up, just surrender. He didn't want to fight them, he wanted them to give in. But after the, the threats were heard by the king, it says he, he asked for prayer and then he went to the temple of God. He went to the house of God to pray. And God gave him a swift answer. He said, the siege is going to come to nothing. And we read this in Isaiah 37, verse 7. God said, surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish. So the one who is sowing rumors and doubts, trying to make God's people afraid, he hears a rumor and he goes back and he sees that the king, he has gone out to war. And this is good for us to remember, that people will reap what they have sown. He tried to sow doubt and spread rumor, and he was deceived himself. He went back and heard that the Ethiopians were coming out to fight, so he begins to, to uh, amass a, a group of people to fight against them. And we come to verse 9. And the king heard concerning Terharka, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, utterly destroying them. You shall be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena and Iva? So he's taunting them. He's heard that the Ethiopians have kind of come against them. So he's protecting his border. He's thinking about how he's going to fight this battle. But he has to send a letter. The king sends this parting shot. He's not worried about the people of Jerusalem getting an army together. Remember, they were few in number. They didn't. They weren't well resourced. They didn't have the horses. They didn't have the weapons. They didn't have the order that they had in Assyria. And so he's not worried about them really fighting against him. He says, don't be deceived by God. Don't be tricked. How can Jerusalem stand? Haven't you heard the reports of what we've done? Haven't you seen the things that we've done to all these other kings? And so what is he appealing to? He's appealing to the things he has heard. He appeals to the things he's seen to make them afraid, to make them give up, to give up all hope of survival or salvation. Like, have you heard the news lately? 
Where are all the kings that stood against us? Is there even one left? And there wasn't. Faith kicks in when we choose to believe God contrary to what we hear and what we see all around us. That is when we begin to walk in faith. When we still believe God, even though there's an army outside, even though you're receiving these letters that are threatening and wanting to make you afraid. And so he's saying, look at your situation. Look at our power. Look at the hopelessness all around you wanting them to give up. Now, for those who look to Jesus Christ, we can find strength. When we look to God's word, we find hope in any situation. Because our God is not weak like the gods that those other kings serve. Our call is to keep trusting God and loving people no matter the news. Nehemiah, remember when he was working to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, and his enemies sought to weaken his hands. They sought to make them afraid. And when we're afraid, we can be paralyzed. We can forget all the things God has done. It's like our brains get short-circuited. We get afraid, and we stop seeking God. We stop looking to God. We forget everything that God has done, and we say, whoa, no hope here. Well, it's true. There's no hope here, but there is with God. So Nehemiah, he said, therefore, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. He prayed. And that's what Hezekiah does in verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wooden stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Hezekiah receives this letter from the king of Assyria, and it was bad news. Now before we discuss what the letter said, I want to remind us, we need to be reminded, that when we choose to align with loyalty to God, we will face opposition. There will be many enemies, because people who are enemies of God we now are their enemies because we align with God. We're loyal to God. When we take a stand in faith and we choose to obey God or to honor Him, we can expect people to hate us even as they hated Jesus. Even They crucified. So the Jews betrayed Christ. They falsely accused Him, sent Him to the Romans, and the Romans crucified Him. So both Jew and Gentile, people were against Christ, and He only did the right thing. He always did the will of God, and yet he found himself betrayed, scorned, mocked, beaten, and crucified. This is what he said in John 15, verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept, if they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him 
who sent me. Some people hate Christians because they are seen as hypocritical, self-righteous, and arrogant, and rightly so. God hates those things as well. Those are all sinful things, but our call is to love God, to love others, and to do this sacrificially. If people hate us when we have done the right thing, when we have honored God, when we've obeyed God and still been slandered, we've still been hurt, they're really hating on God, and they'll have to answer to him for that. They don't have to answer to me. God is the judge. He will, he will see if they answer to him. And so the question for us is, are you willing to suffer not for yourself, but for God's sake, for his sake? If he calls you to suffer in some way by taking an unpopular stand, by doing a, saying a difficult thing, are you willing to do that for God's sake? God delights to see people who value him to such an extent they're willing to sacrifice their own comforts, their, their potential advances in this world for his approval. People who are willing to do that, just to obey God, to honor him above all, above yourself or above what other people might think. It's a big challenge. We can't do this on our own. We need the Lord's strength to pull us through. So King Hezekiah did exactly with this letter as he did with the threats. I like that he didn't just crumble it up and throw it away. I don't have to listen to that. No, he, he read it, and then he brought it before God. He spread it before the Lord. Don't you like how he said Because it was probably a scroll, and so he just, I want you to see all this, Lord. I want you to see all these words that have been spoken against you and against your people. And let's make this a practice when we get bad news. When we're confronted, before we react with fear or anger or offense, he spread it all out before the Lord in prayer and said, Lord, look at this. Hezekiah realized he was completely insufficient to change the situation. He couldn't fix anything but he sought the one who can do anything and does everything. I love that Job says that. I know now that you can do everything. Everything. Not just anything, but everything. He acknowledged God as his Lord, his master and commander. He says, you alone, you've made heaven and earth. You've made everything. Everything is yours. How trivial the greatest struggles become when we realize, we, when we pray, we're speaking to the God who made everything, who is king over all, king of kings, lord of lords. There is no one above him. It's kind of like a little girl who's being pestered by her older brothers when we come to the Lord in prayer, where she just says, I'm telling dad. She doesn't try to write open letters. She's not looking for sympathy by sending out a bunch of texts. She's not gathering signature for support. She just goes straight to her dad because she knows he has the authority and the power to straighten out her tormentors. And God is able to do that for us. We can just go to God. We don't need to spread, we don't need to get people on our side. We don't have to try to, to get public support or to gauge what other people think. I'm like, what should I do here? Just go to God. Spread it before Him. Spread it all out and say, Lord, look at this. Look at what's being said. We should do the same. There was this great host of enemies that encamped there. Remember, there was this 
siege that was ongoing. And he said, God, take notice of these threats of violence against your people. He said, Lord, incline your ear. Help us in our desperate hour. And he said, it's true, God. No one has stood against these people. They have just butchered everyone. Every king has fallen. Every city that tried to stand against them has has been destroyed. And then he says, now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. Now there might have been a thousand reasons for King Hezekiah to ask why God should deliver his people. Right? He could have said, well, this is the place where the temple is. This is where people can worship you. This is where people come from for sacrifice. He could have asked for the sake of his family or his inheritance. Or, Lord, think of the children, all the innocents. What reason would you have given if your city was under threat of siege and there was death there? Why should God save you? What reason would you give? Could he say that they've been loyal and obedient to God? Oh, Lord, we keep worshiping you. We've been loyal and obedient. No, definitely not. They had been idolatrous. They were greedy. They hadn't kept the Sabbaths. They had forsaken the Lord. Hezekiah prays for salvation so all the nations would know that God is the Lord. For God, not for him. God, save us for yourself. Save us so all people know that you're God. You get the glory. They were no prize. They were unworthy of salvation. But God had claimed them. He recognized, King Hezekiah did, their position, that they were God's people. And as their God, it was to his credit that he would save them. He would get the glory for this. Now, how might our prayers be different if we did not pray for us, we did not pray for others, but we prayed for God's sake? Praying for God's sake. We can still pray for ourselves and pray for others, but for God's sake. Not for me and not for their sake. For God's. If we pray from a position of weakness and powerlessness, God has great opportunity to be glorified. But if we're praying for us or for just someone else's sake, we're not allowing God, we're not giving him really the freedom to be glorified in that. We can say, for your glory, but let's, let's think about that. How would things change if we prayed for God's sake? When things are affecting me and I want things to change. When I feel threatened and I am afraid to say, Lord, not that I wouldn't be afraid, but for your sake, save me. Matthew Henry, he said, Those who receive messages of terror from men with patience and send messages of faith to God by prayer may expect messages of grace and peace from God for their comfort. The story gets better. Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? 
against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height, to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Wouldn't you like to have a direct line to God like Isaiah did? Where King Hezekiah is praying somewhere else, and the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah. And he's like, hey, he's been praying. And he knew it. And he says, this is what God says concerning your prayer. And he sends this message. The cool thing is, we actually do. As Christians, we have Christ who intercedes for us. We have the Holy Spirit who fills us. We have God's word that guides and directs us. And we have this access to boldly come to speak to God and to hear from God anything that concerns us. He hears from God. Isaiah sends a message and he begins saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed... Let's just stop right there. King Hezekiah had God's attention because he prayed. I wonder if he had not prayed how things would be different. I wonder how many times we have missed out on hearing from God, wisdom from God, receiving salvation and deliverance from God, words of peace, because we have not prayed. How many times, I wonder, has God accomplished impossible things in and through our lives, we may have not seen the answer, simply because we prayed. That was the only reason. It wasn't because we deserved to be heard. It wasn't because, yeah, you know, you've been putting in the hard yards and people have been giving you a hard time, so I'm going to do something good for you now. No. Just because we prayed. Just because we gathered to pray, God said, I hear what you're saying. You've prayed, and here's my answer. If we realized how powerful prayer is, and I, I, I'm almost loath to say it that way, because the power is in God. God is powerful, and he answers prayer. But if we realize the, the divine assistance and aid and power there is exercised in prayer, it would be our priority, it would be our first response, not our last resort. Now understand, for King Hezekiah, this was a last resort. This was a total last resort. What had he already tried to do? He tried to buy his freedom. He tried to build better walls. He went to his armory. He tried to shore up defenses. He protected his water supply. He had done all these things, and they had all failed, and now he's praying. It was a last resort for King Hezekiah. But he prayed, and check this out, God heard him. He didn't say, you know, Hezekiah, if you had prayed first, maybe I'd listen to you. But I was so far down your list. I was so far down the line. I'm not going to answer you this time. No. He says, because you prayed. That is grace. It was not because he was more righteous than other men. It wasn't because he was considered a good king. It was because he prayed to God. That's why God heard him. That's why God hears you. That's why he hears me. Because he is going to respond to anyone who comes to him in prayer, seeking him, trusting him. When we have come to the end, we don't have to try to build the walls 
or bribe people or do all these things before, but to be brought to that place of humility and surrender before God right away and say, God, I'm going to pray for your sake, not for mine. He didn't destroy the Assyrians because they were exceedingly sinful more than any other nation. No, it was because he prayed, because you have prayed to me. God will do this for his own namesake because he is a good God. He hears prayers. Now, Rabshakeh and the king of Assyria, they had sinned against God because they were lifted up with pride. And they said, by our strength, we've done this. Because we're so mighty and powerful, we can destroy, we can cut down forests and dam rivers and besiege people. And they, they had the first all-weather army in the history of the world. Down to their hobnailed boots and their defensive and offensive formations and their siege engines. And they were formidable. No one could stand against them. When the Rabshakeh raised his voice against God's people, he raised his voice against God. When he elevated himself in pride, he vaunted himself before the Almighty. And God noticed that. God would do it for his sake. And he says, when, he, when they settled those bad things against you, they were talking about me. They were saying wickedness against me. I take that personally. I took that to heart when he was saying those things. When people say things to you, and you're God's child, he takes that to heart. He hears it all. It's not lost on him. Now, the words of Sennacherib, they have a very overtly satanic tone. It says, by the multitude of my chariots, I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dung and drunk water with the soles of my feet. You, you hear that tone there? There's a lot of eyes. There's a lot of my, what I am going to do. That's very similar to what Satan said in Isaiah 14, where he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I will be like the Most High. And God said, you want to raise yourself up to heaven? Well, I'm going to cast you down into hell. You can't stand against me. I am God, and there is no other. So God continues his address to the king in verse 26. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities and the heaps of ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and the grain blighted before it is grown. But I know your dwelling place, your going out and your coming in, and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put a hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. So God speaks to those proud Assyrians. He says, you think you're special because you can cut down a forest? Don't you know that I made that from nothing? I created it. You can divert a river. Oh, big deal. Like, I made the river. It's nothing for me. You who exert your authority by, and this is what they were known for, the Assyrians would... Uh, their conquered foes, they would put a hook into the, the jaws or into the noses of their uh, defeated um, prisoners and they would drag them back to Assyria in humiliation and shame. Many dying along the way, they would 
cut off people's noses and their ears and, and delimb them and, and flay them alive and put them on, impale them on stakes. And I mean, they were known for their brutality. And so he says, with that same vengeance that you've shown, I am going to visit you. I'm going to visit you for that. I'm not going to forget it. I'm the one who allowed you to devour these cities. But you are now under my judgment. It's not my people who are going to judge you. I'll take care of that. When God's people are attacked and brutalized, God takes it personally. He will act in due time. We can count on this. Not my time. His time. Verse 30. Now he's making promises to his people. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God made a promise to overthrow this Assyrian army almost 200,000 strong that was about the city. And he says, I'll give you a sign to prove it. And I love the fact that it's not like it can be fulfilled today. He says, in the next three years, you're not going to plow anything. You're not going to sow, but the land will produce. And you'll eat. You'll have enough food. So I'll have the land produce enough for you. And that third year, you'll plant. You'll plant vineyards. You'll sow. And so it's like, what a promise of life. It looked like they were going to die like any day. And he's saying, okay, here's some proof. Over the next three years, you're going to eat. And you won't even have to farm the land. I'm going to make it supply for you. So I'm like, all right. If God's going to fulfill that, then you have to be alive to see it. It'd be very encouraging to hear that. A retrospective promise. Like those crops planted on the third year, the remnant, those who remained, they would take root downward and bear fruit upward. And this is the proper order of things. Often we can look for fruit before the roots have been established. But once those roots go down deep, they're able to, to withstand wind. They're able to drink deep of the water and nutrients and therefore bear fruit. God was zealous to protect his people and he said concerning the king of Assyria, he's not going to come into the city. He's not going to even shoot an arrow into the city. By the way he came, he is going to return. And that last part, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. He says, I'm going to defend this city. I'm going to save the city for my sake. God is capable, more than capable, to defend his own glory. And he does things for his own divine reasons. He didn't say for your sake. He said for my sake. And that's so powerful. Jerusalem deserved judgment. They forsook God. But also for David's sake. He had made promises to David. And he was going to uphold them. He remembered 
a righteous man who honored and obeyed him, a man after his own heart, and hundreds of years later, he looks to David and says, I'll do it for his sake. How would you like, 100 years from now, should God tarry, to look back and say, I'm going to do it for my servant, said's sake, my servant Regina's sake. I'm going to do it for their sakes. I'm going to do it for my sake, but I'm going to do it for your sake. That's pretty cool. I, I want to be someone that God looks at and says, you know, hundreds of years later, I they won't know my name, but God hasn't forgotten my name. I don't know my great-great-grandfather's names. I don't know anything about them, but God hasn't forgotten them. And if they're a righteous man, there could be things in my life God has done for his sake, for her sake, because he is good. He's done it for his own sake and his glory. So may God do so for us. God delivers us in a similar way, not because we're deserving, not because we're fruitful, not because we're even loyal, but for his sake. So we can't say, oh, yeah, I've done a pretty good job, and I'm now getting recognition. That's the world's way. There's no tenure. There's no seniority with God. He's just looking for people who trust him and obey him. We're saved from sin, death, hell. We've entered into a relationship with God for eternity, primarily for God's own sake. His glory. Because he hasn't saved us as, as angels who had not sinned. No, we are fallen, sinful human beings deserving of hell and death forever. And for his sake, he saved us. But he also loves you. And he's also sent his son to demonstrate his love for you. So he's done it for your sake, but primarily his sake. Because you are his inheritance now. He wants you. He wants to be with you forever. I mean, what love... What a God who would be so mighty and, and glorious and yet say, for my sake, I'm going to save you. We may set aside a day, we may set aside an amount of money and say, this is God's, and think we do very well not to touch that thing. But know that we are God's. We have been saved for him our whole lives. Not just for a day, not just a limited amount, completely. All we have, all we are is for God. For his sake, we are to live. For his sake, we breathe and have our being. And so that should be an overarching theme for our whole lives. It's not about, how does this work with my schedule? But to say, I am God's. I exist for him. I live, I pray for his sake. So God, here I am. Don't your trials, don't your difficulties seem very small when you think about it in those terms? That we exist for his sake. We don't have to worry about being limited because we serve a God who's without limits. You have been saved for God's sake. Don't Let's not forget that. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, that his son Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. God made good on his promise. He had said in Hosea, 
1.7 concerning the Assyrians, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. So he did something totally unique in sending the angel of the Lord to go and to kill single-handedly 185,000 in one night. This army that had boasted complete power and their desire to slaughter God's people, one angel wiped them out in a night. That is a huge reversal. Pretty hard to imagine. They were not defeated by skilled infantrymen, superior tactics, or better weapons, or firepower. They were laid waste by the King of Kings, the Lord of Glory. And he, at that time, received glory for this exploit. And even to this day, we can praise him for a God who could render such a great deliverance, who could show his power in such a miraculous way in keeping his word without a shot being fired. So King Sennacherib returned in humiliation like a man dragged home with a hook in his jaws in silence and shame. And history tells us there were about 20 years that passed between verses 37 and 38. 20 years on, the king of Assyria, he's worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. Though he had seen the deliverance and the power of God, some miraculous plague that God visited upon his people, he still was worshiping Nisroch. And he was there in 681 when his sons killed him with the sword as he was worshiping his God. So thus ends the reign of the great king of Assyria. And that's the glorious truth about our God. His reign is everlasting. Nobody can, can, no one can assassinate him. No one can steal his scepter or his crown. No one can, can sit on his throne. He is occupying that throne. He is king of kings. His rule is everlasting. His kingdom will endure forever because it's not of this world. It's beyond this world. So what can we take away from this passage? Consider our motives in the things we ask God for. Is it for God's sake or is it for your sake? Let's pray for God's sake. So often our motives reflect more of our fleshly nature than our new spiritual one. Not prayed from a position of weakness or confidence in God, but either in self-confidence or that we know how God should act. We know what he should do. But see, Hezekiah, he spread out these words, these threats. He said, Lord, look at this. Save us for your sake. And we can do that same thing. Our tendency is to judge others, but we should walk in humility and prayer, submitting ourselves to God's will. I like in James chapter 4 where it says, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Now, we all know that we ought to pray. But we can have a hard time to make time for prayer, to pray as we ought. 
We can make plans, but God's often not the author of those plans or even contained within the plan. <laughs> but God ought to be central, and it should be his plan. It's his work. We are his, and so it follows, therefore, that he ought to be, be the, the author of the plan that we lay before him. If we have the time to eat and to drink and to sleep, we have time to pray. If we can do those three things, I'm not going to say something involuntary, like uh, breathing, for instance. I don't have to think about breathing. My body just does that naturally. But for us, prayer ought to be supernaturally natural. As, as natural for us as breathing, where we begin praying and we didn't really realize that we were, we were in the throne room. We said, Lord, help me. Because it's just how we... We begin to mature and grow. So it should be our, our top priority, not our last resort. If prayer was central for Jesus, it should be for his followers. And so many times, um, our words can be spent in speaking about transitory things, things that are passing away. It could be about, it's fine to talk about sport or the weather that's changing all the time. But the reality is, we can talk about transitory things to people who will mishear us, misinterpret us, and are powerless to change our situation. And we can use a lot of our breath in making a case before men instead of spreading out our troubles before the King of Kings. What is an audience with the Most High worth to you? Simon the sorcerer asked for the ability when he laid hands on people for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And he offered money. I don't know how much money he offered. But how much money, if we, that's, that's something we understand from a worldly standpoint. How much would you pay if you could have unlimited access to the throne of glory to speak to God? What's it worth to you in money? What percentage would you be willing to plunk down right now not just limited access. You know, you can get the, the limited access uh, uh, six-game plan of the season tickets. Or you can get the full season pass. How much would you plunk down? What's it worth to you? Well, it's very valuable in God's eyes because he has sent his son and shed his blood so he could have access by one spirit into the throne of God. Is it, is it, does that correlate? to how our lives live, how often we avail ourselves. And I don't say this to make anyone feel guilty. Everyone in this room could pray more, possibly feel like you should pray more. But may we do what God has said, that we would pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That intercessions and prayers would be made for all people, for governments and for kings and rulers for other believers, for people who don't know the Lord, for people who do. For ourselves also, that we would be casting our cares upon him because he cares for us. If you could turn, we'll close in James chapter 5, verse 13. And in reading this, let's consider how we can pray for God's sake. 
for his glory. James 5, verse 13, it says, I'll wait for the rustling to subdue. That's one thing why I really like Bibles, is because I, I, can, I can't hear you stopping scrolling, but I can hear you stop turning. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, if God answered our prayer like God answered Elijah's prayer, there may be a great temptation that we we think, I have some sort of power now. I have some sort of ability. But he did it for God's sake. And when we pray for healing for ourselves or for someone else, is it for God's sake? Is that why we pray to be healed? For God's sake. What does it take for us to pray, pray a prayer of faith? If we ask people to pray for us, do we pray for ourselves? Or are you just like, well, if I, if I send in this request, more people will be praying, and the more people praying, maybe one of them will stick. And I, I don't know where we get these ideas, but sometimes we do. <laughs> let's pray for God's sake. First, let's pray. Pray for God's sake. We pray for blessing. Let's bless God. God is going to answer. He is going to save. He's going to do it for the glory of his name. Let's rejoice that we have such a Father who loves us, that He has blessed us, He is blessing us, and He has plans to bless us in, in a myriad of ways beyond what we could recognize or thank Him for. And let's value the presence of God as He values His time with us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this opportunity to praise You, to remember You, to to Think upon your great exploits and also to have our hearts examined by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we would not just uh, think we need to increase the volume of our prayers, but that you would purify the motive for our prayers, Father, that we would be as King Hezekiah did in the sense that he spread out these threats before you and he asked you to save for your sake. But Lord, may we not be like Hezekiah in that it was his last resort and he only did so because there was nothing else he could do. But Lord, bring us to that place quickly where we realize nothing that we do is going to avail anything except you do it. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Except the Lord watch the city, the watchmen stay up late in vain. Lord, we, we need you in every aspect of our lives and we invite you to, to be the author of our plans, to direct and guide each step, to use us in accordance with your will, and to make us vessels of honor to you, Lord, that we would be like Isaiah, who heard you speak and could deliver that message of peace. Thank you for Jesus, who is our peace, who has become for us wisdom. 
Thank you for your word and thank you for your promises. Lord, stir in us hearts of faith, hearts of service and sacrifice and surrender before you that we live for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.